so excited to talk about past avatars. This is my jam. This is my jam. Like, I, I, I've been telling you, I've been going in deep dives. This is, I'm ready. You'll get, you'll get the chance a bit this week. All this, like, knowledge that has been building up for years. Thank you for giving me this output. Thank yourself. You took me up on the crazy idea. <laughs> I did. I did. Get through this together. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Hello and welcome to The Pie Show. I'm your host, Kelly. And I'm Colton. Today we are discussing Season 1, Episode 8, The Winter Solstice, Part 2. Avatar Roku. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about past avatars. I'm so ready. Okay, I'm going to give a little summary. I just got so excited. Well, give the summary and then we can we can talk about it. Yeah. I should. Summary. During the winter solstice, Aang must travel into the Fire Nation, which wants to capture him to communicate with his predecessor, Avatar Roku. I like how they needed to tell us that you know, hey, BT Dubs, the Fire Nation wants to capture Aang, the Avatar. In case you were totally asleep the last seven episodes. <laughs> it's so cute. It's just like a BT Dubs. The guys with the big scary music? Yeah, they're the bad ones. <laughs> I like that. Okay, so one of the first things that came to me is I didn't realize how close we are to the Fire Nation geographically. Like, I know they say it's a, a long trip. Like, it's it's going to be a long ride. But it's close enough that you can get there. I guess I kind of lost track of us in the, in the world. I need to see a map. Well, for most of the show so far, we've kind of been going along the coast up the Earth Kingdom, right? Yeah. That was, that was my understanding. Yeah, I think I, like... We're going up the coast um, from the south. I'm literally pulling up a map because I need to see it. Yeah, we should make we should make the map like the chapter art. Yes. So with the map I'm looking at, Kyoshi Island, Omashu, Heibai's Forest, they're all along the coast. And Crescent Island is kind of in the middle of the map from what I'm seeing. Yeah, it looks like Crescent Island is... Fire Nation territory that is about as close as the Fire Nation gets to the Earth Kingdom. Yes. Yes. It's like the easternmost island on the archipelago of the Fire Nation. Yeah. The one I pulled up actually has their route traced on it, too. Their first route for book one, which is pretty cool. This is our first like real world visit to Crescent Island, which is pretty cool because we'll we'll see this island again. Do you remember that we well, see we... this island again? I remember we saw this island last week. 
I know, I know, but we see this island again in the future. Do we? Yeah. You know, for someone who loves maps and geography and flags as much as I do, I don't have a strong memory for things that come back around in this show. <laughs> no. Did you realize that this episode? I kind of did. Oh, my goodness. Do you want to talk about that right now? Because I kind of do. Now that you're, I, you're getting so sheepish about it, let's call it out now. You just want to rub my face in it because retribution is swift for you. Well, I just said... That, you know, are, are you sure you don't remember this? Like, you're like, no, no, I'm pretty sure we don't see anything like this again. But it's important for you to remember, this is my first rewatch. This is your first rewatch. Which means that these early episodes are about the furthest memory in my mind, the deepest memory I have <laughs> of Avatar. That's true. If there's true. anything I'm going to have forgotten, it's this early stuff. Of course I know all the details of the end of the show. I just watched it. That's true. That's true. These are some pretty close callbacks. They do have some callbacks. Uh, some of these do come up again, again in the middle. So I could see where you might, you might not remember it as much. The callbacks in question are the doors. The doors to Avatar Roku's um, uh, chamber. The weird 3D animation. With the weird 3D animation and you have to use multi- horn doors. Multiple be- multiple skilled benders to open them or, you know, one skilled bender or something to be able to open the doors to an avatar sanctuary. You know, that makes me wonder. Normally, you know, the only time we saw the door open on Air Temple Island mm-hmm. was Aang doing it mm-hmm. himself. And... The Fire Sages say in this episode that a fully formed avatar would be able to open the door themselves. Do you think the air monks needed like four of them to be able to open up the avatar chamber at the Southern Air Temple? Now that you mention it, I would I would think so. I would I would think so. And Ang can do it himself because he's already mastered airbending? Yes. I would think so. Because the avatar does have that greater power. That's really cool to point out. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this is our first bit of concrete evidence that Aang has truly mastered airbending. Yeah. We've been told that he's mastered it before, but he's an 11 year like he's a little kid. So far, most of the really highly competent benders we've seen have been adults. Mm-hmm. But this is like, he did the thing that's supposed to take far more people than just one person to do the thing. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good... That's a really good catch, Colton. I like that. You didn't catch that. I didn't catch. I I didn't. It didn't connect to me as strong. But like now that I'm thinking about it, that's that makes the most sense with the mechanics. We have another callback too, which is we talked about um, when all the statues lit up. You're like, that's funny. Like, do you think that it 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 happened anywhere else that there was like a statue of the Avatar or something like that? That that may have and. And you're like, nah, that's crazy talk. That that Colton, you're Colton, you're crazy. You said that to yourself, and I was like, no, no, you're on to something. It comes back. And here are the fire sages who said, um, who we see when everything lights up, they notice 
that the statue on the crescent I- on the island lights up to return the avatar. Yeah, I have no clever realization or bit of insight about this. I just forgot. <laughs> I I have nothing to redeem myself on on this part. I was like, I wrote in my notes, statue glowing. I told you. I was so excited. You did. You did. So excited. But again, that that's also I because this is my like umpteenth rewatch. I have really gotten into learning more about the older avatars. So stuff to do with Roku, like you know, that's that's where my mind's gonna go. So. I've got that advantage, but I was really, I was really glad that it came back so quick. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I'm glad I didn't have to wait a year for you to get your, I told you so moment. (laughs) I think I have some early ones that I'll wait a year on. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So while we're going through past conversations and callbacks, there's a, you put a bit of follow-up in the, in the show notes document. I did. So. I will concede that Aang may not have fully entered the spirit world, but someone did, and that someone was Sokka. Because even when Aang is in spirit form, he cannot find Sokka. And Sokka confirms that he has been to the spirit world and that the spirit world has no bathrooms. And it is later confirmed by another character in the Atlee universe that, no, the spirit world does not have bathrooms. So I just thought I'd follow that up with Sokka has been to the spirit world. And maybe that's the spirit world as you were discussing it. Well, we didn't see Sokka last week, but I'll accept your your point that he, he went to the spirit world. Yes. I stand by my statement that Aang did not. Oh, I know you do. And I said I, I will concede that Aang did not, but that, but that he entered the spirit state. We can get into that more later this week. Because I, I I have an argument for that, but there are some other things in this episode that I think we should talk about first. Gotcha. I just and I wanted to bring up that uh, I I had I had missed that at first. Well, thank you. You're welcome. It looks like we're talking about the blockade. This was so action heavy. After I feel like last episode was a pretty mellow episode. It, it kind of was by comparison to this week. Yeah, this was so action heavy. It was like, yeah, I know you had to go through some lore stuff last week and it was a little, a little, a little slower. But here we go. Bam. We're racing. We're fighting. We're flying. We're sw- swimming. I don't know. We're doing all these things. Our fight at the end is at the beginning. Yes. Our big fight at the end is one of the first things we see. It was really interesting, and uh, it was a rush. It was truly a rush to, like, get there. It was a race to get there. I felt the urgency of this episode. Yeah, yeah. I I really like this fight at the beginning because it feels... I don't know if it felt this way to you, but it it felt like the stakes were higher. Yes, it, it really... I love that they brought back uh, the commander. Like, I felt like he truly up the ante for our parallel journeys that are happening. Um, Like they can say that the fire nation is like, we understand that the fire nation is dangerous to team avatar and they give us a lot more of a sense how dangerous entering the fire nation is for Zuko and Iroh. 
And that was really jarring to um, pick up that pace and pick up that intensity as you're approaching the blockade. It, it really felt for the first time this season that we had three distinct factions. And I think that, you know, that ends up being a thing that we're going to see for the rest of the season. Can you explain a bit more the three distinct factions? Well, we have, we have Team Avatar, and everyone's out to get them. Yeah. But then we have, you know, we have, like you said, Commander Zhao and, and the Fire Nation army, and they're, repre- they're a representation of the Fire Nation as a whole. Mm-hmm. But off to the side, we have Zuko and Iroh and their little boat that is distinct from Zhao and operating against Zhao, but still against Team Avatar. They're they're associated with the Fire Nation in this in this way. You know, that's where they come from, that's where they're trying to get back to, but they're not a part of it. But they want to be a part of it. Well, at least Zuko wants to be a part of it from from all of Iroh, like you could hear, like it doesn't sound like he wants to be a part of it. He says, you know, my brother's not the understanding type, and like he said, of all the foolish things you have done, this is this is the foolish. This is this is the worst. Like, yeah, but in order to be a part of the Fire Nation again, Zuko has to do things that are against the Fire Nation to get there. He has to. He has to engage Zhao in a level of combat, you know, maybe not directly fighting him this time like he did in their Agni Kai, but he's he has to beat Zhao to capture Aang. It's really cool to see an antagonist for our antagonist. Yes. I'm glad that they gave Zuko the space at the beginning of the series to become the antagonist, and then they tacked on an antagonist for him. So we have this triangle. It's really cool. And it, it really others Zuko so that, you know, even even if in the future, if we see him with, you know, I mean, this is a rewatch podcast. We know we'll see him with the fi- be in the Fire Nation at some point and with the Fire Nation. Will he ever really be a part of that? Because we've spent so much time using the Fire Nation as an antagonist to Zuko. Yeah. I also want to point out that part of the reason why I think Zuko is has raised the stakes so high for himself this week in particular is because he did not doggedly chase down Team Avatar last week mm. when he made his big choice. He chose to forestall that that chase and now he can't proceed as he has. He has to run to catch up to make up for the lost time that he spent trying to save Iroh and saving Iroh successfully. It's really funny that you mentioned that because um, they actually like note that even when Zuko gets to the town that Aang just left, Iroh's still naked. Oh, was he? I didn't notice. <laughs> yeah! Iroh still doesn't have his clothes back. <laughs> so Zuko clearly rode with Zuko Iroh straight to like, the town after the rescue. Straight to the town. It's like, I am making up for lost ground here, Iroh. Like, uncle, I'm not doing this. All right, I got you. You're safe. Let's go. <laughs> exactly. There was there was a moment with Zuko and Iroh where <sighs> Zuko just says to Iroh, 
I'm sorry, uncle. And he said it in such a way that I said, how many more times will we hear Zuko say, I'm sorry, uncle, in this exact same tone of voice throughout this series? I said that to myself. This is kind of a rhetorical question, but did you, uh, did you catch that? I did. Are we going to have an I'm sorry, uncle counter? We might have to. Are you going to track that too? I might. But it just, it it really, as someone who's seen this show so many times, but I, I haven't, my last rewatch or two, I haven't gone all the way back to the beginning. It just really is interesting to hear Zuko's, it feels like true regret when he says it to Iroh of like, I'm sorry. This is more important than all of that. All of those things that you just said, I understand this is like threat of death, threat of everything. This could ruin my entire life. This is going to end my life. But this is more important than that. And he's putting that honor ahead of everything else. Yeah, so it just I, really hit me. I get that. I think one of the things that I also really like about Zuko is he makes a lot of hard decisions, but he very rarely makes decisions without giving thought to both sides. And he expresses that. He has thought about the consequences, and he lets you know that he has thought about the consequences. He calculates the risk. And he doesn't make decisions lightly. And so when he thrusts, he means it, for better or worse. That's really cool. Those are his most tragic moments, I think. There's a tragedy to it. I know what I'm doing. I know why you think it's wrong, but I need to do it. Ooh. Ooh, I like that, Colton. Oh, that that's going to hit me different the next time I hear him say, I'm sorry. The next time he has to make a decision like that, that's going to hit me different. That's rough, buddy. I really like that we get to see this week a little bit of world building that you and I love so much, but this time from the perspective of the Fire Nation. Ooh. Okay, okay, elaborate. Well, we have Fire Sage Shiyu say that five times fast. Fire Sage Shiyu. Fire Sage Shiyu. Oh, I, I lost it on two. Yeah, I barely <laughs> made it through the first one. I'm not. Komodo I'm Ryan's. just gonna say she you for the rest of the episode. I'm not saying. Yeah, that's my Komodo Ryan's. <laughs> so yeah, we have this. We have she you, and he's kind of the only fire sage who hasn't lost his like hasn't lost the plot or you know lost track of what his greater duty is to the world. I made a note. It's another. It's another tick in the box for duty. I made a note. The importance of duty. Okay, but it's interesting because it's not Shiyu saying that Aang has a duty. It's Shiyu saying that he has a duty. Yeah. It's it's him saying, you know, I as a fire sage am supposed to be outside of the politics of this world. And, you know. It's my responsibility to you, the Avatar. Yeah, I, I provide a service to this individual on their journey. Mm-hmm. And that's. I just think it's really cool that we get to see someone who is aligned with the Fire Nation, you know, aligned with our antag- with our overarching antagonist of the series, but on the outside of it in a way that Zuko and Iroh are not. Yeah, it's really interesting because Sokka makes a comment at one point of like firebenders aren't friends. Like 
all these people in here, they're not friends. They're not friends. They're not friends. And then she was like, I'm a friend. <laughs> yeah, Sokka's kind of like, it felt a little racist. I felt he was in, he was in enemy territory. That's what he was prepping for. He was prepping for enemy territory. He had his dukes up and was ready to punch his way out of there. Punch his way out of the fire. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the nation that has been terrorizing him and his family. His dad has been at war with them for as, you know, as long as he can remember. Ooh. Ooh, our And here is... he is. There's such a cool visual of just the it felt so out of place to have two water tribe kids in all blue in this just sea of red everywhere. All the lights are red, everything's red and just this overwhelming darkness in a way surrounding them almost almost like and i'm i'm figuring this out as i'm making this connection on on the spot here Do it like a mirror of what we see in the first episode yes and again Sokka is ready to go mm-hmm. fire nation bad they're here i'm ready to go this time i'm outnumbered okay. i'm in their territory instead of them in mine don't care still the same family here gotta protect Yes, exactly. That strong sense to protect, even when he is outnumbered. Doesn't matter. He's gonna find a way. I love I love that ingenuity of ingenuity of him to find a way. Even if it means just this, like in a boomerang. Like who knows? He's ready. Saka finds a way. Exactly. <laughs> Look out, life. Saka's coming for you. <laughs> Sokka pal. I love how we lose Sokka both in both parts of of this uh, two-parter. We lose him in the first half, um, in the first part to the spirit world, and then we lose him like in the blockade scene, like he literally just like falls from the sky. <laughs> it looked for a half a second like he was sitting on a cloud. Yes. After he falls off of off of Appa, he's like he lands on the cloud, and the way that they put. Like, they didn't put that part of Cloud that he falls on in the animation layer until he was on it. So I've watched, like, a lot of animated movies and TV shows and stuff, and I always think it's really interesting what is on the background layer versus what's on the animation layer. Are you familiar with this concept? I'm probably familiar with it in the rudimentary sense of, like, it's that door that the Scooby-Doo villain's going to be behind because that door is a bolder color. Like, it, it, I, I'm familiar with, I know the object that's going to be interactive with next. Right. So when a, a lot of animation is done um, in a style based on a technology that uh, Walt Disney actually invented, where back in the day, not so much anymore, but you would have multiple sheets of cellophane that you would stack on top of each other, and then you'd take a picture of it. And that was a single frame of your animation. And in order to save money and work and time, if you had a scene happening, you know, in front of a house, let's say, you would put the house on the background layer. It would be on a single sheet of cellophane by itself, maybe with a, you know, a sky and some sun and everything else at like the deepest depth that you would see Mm -hmm. as further, as far away from the camera and all that stuff that didn't move. You'd only have to paint, had to have to draw and paint it once, and then all the characters that move, and you would have to draw them every time. You would put them on a different sheet of cellophane on a different layer, and that's the animation layer. 
And you can put more layers in front of that for, you know, anything that's occluding the scene. If you have something moving in front of the camera, you want to have something like move in front of the camera, uh, but not in playing with the characters. And that visual style, even when, you know, I think Avatar was hand-drawn, but even in forms of animation that aren't hand-drawn, you, you still see that, you know, signaling of that's why that door in Scooby-Doo is a different color because it's on a different piece of plastic than everything else. And in this scene with Sokka falling off of Appa, Appa, wow. <laughs> I think that's a New York thing. I don't know. I think so. I, I'm going to say it's a New York thing. I'll give you that. You're good. He doesn't, the way he falls onto the cloud, they drew him on a cla- on a piece of cloud that is only on the animation layer when he is falling through it. So it looks for a second like a cloud blows into the scene for him to sit on it because we never get that we never get him approaching it to transition through it. He's just kind Mm. of suddenly on top of it. Yeah. Sorry, I had to animation nerd for a second. No, I that was really good. I really enjoyed that. That was really like I didn't know that that depth to it. It's one of those things that when you see it, you know, you can know. You know, kind yeah. of like you have that intuition of it's going to be, it's going to be there. Something there is going to happen. And you get that in animation in a way that you don't in live action. Because in live action, everything is real. Or everything is able to be moved. Or, you know, it's there. You don't have that. That telegraph in a way. Yeah. I just thought it was really funny that both episodes, like, a few minutes in, they're like, and we're just going to drop Sokka. <laughs> we're just- just bye. All right, he got taken by a spirit. Bye. Okay, you just fell off of Appa. <laughs> I mean, he makes a pretty good damsel in distress. Him. He's fine, but I just I-, I thought of all the things to like tie together two episodes. That's a really strange one to pick. <laughs> like consistency. Okay, all right, but <laughs> I think odd. Part of why I didn't like him the first time around as much. Who's the damsel in distress? <laughs> because, like, yeah, he <laughs> he's the comedic relief. He's the fall guy. He's the damsel in distress. Like, it takes so long for, not that he doesn't contribute to the story or to the group early on, but it takes so long for those contributions, I think, to a first-time viewer to outweigh some of that fluff. I agree. I agree. And I think I think what's really interesting because um, we're on the soccer tangent, I I always remember his trick with the doors. I always remember it. Like, even if I don't rewatch all the way to the beginning, it stuck with me of, let me create these uh, little bombs and we can set them off. And that is just, like, I was like, he had sparks of that, like, in him from the beginning of this planning. And I think the difference of his planning then, like at the beginning, like where we're at now in comparison to at the end of the series is a little bit about his insecurities. And I see him as so insecure when he comes up with this plan. Like he defers it of like, you know, oh, well, my dad taught it to me and um, it may not work. And then it doesn't work. And he's like, oh, I knew it wasn't going to work. And he winces. And he's so insecure in his plan. Like, he still comes up with these. He pitches them. But he's insecure. That's what I picked up on, at least. And we'll see him become more confident. I didn't notice that. I was too busy wondering what sort of father teaches a... How old was Sokka when his dad left? <laughs> Five? Uh, 
Yeah. What kind of father teaches a five-year-old how to make a bomb? Uh, probably one that has to leave his son as the, as, uh, the eldest male in charge of the village when he has to go fight a, a war that's been going on for a hundred years. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, he's like, if I can instill in him one thing. <laughs> but, counterpoint. Go ahead. You're fighting a war for a hundred years against people that can control fire. And so mm-hmm. you teach your five-year-old how to make boom fire. I feel I'm curious to see I wonder how they will have used it. I didn't I didn't deep dive into that, but I'm sure there are other uses for it especially, you know, like in um in the South Pole for, you know, building things or, you know, blasting glaciers away. Uh blasting blasting holes, I don't know. I don't know, blasting some kind of things. Blast mining ice. What, no, like, uh, I don't know, blast mining to do uh, some ice fishing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, hold on, guys. Let me just cut this hole in the ice and drop the bomb in and boom, they look fish. I'm not an outdoorsy gal. I don't know these things. But that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, but I do find it. I, uh, I, saw, I saw it as so he's so insecure and it doesn't help. With Aang being straight up savage with, did the definition of genius change in the last hundred years? That's such a good burn. Oh my god. (laughs) But I also love that Katara saw her brother's plan and she adapted it. She was like, no, 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 he's on to something. And it bolstered him. He's like, I am. I am. Like he, it, it bolstered his spirits a little. And so I think, you know, Next time he makes a kind of, you know, out there plan, I think he's going to feel a little bit more secure in it because he got halfway there this time. He just needs to put all the pieces together. And he got halfway there with the prison break with, you know, of, you know, making the small thing, the small thing of the vents and the, and the rocks and then using it to a bigger, um, a bigger realm to give, um, or to the Earthbenders. So he's getting there. With the help of his friends who believe in him. Exactly. Cute animal alert. All right. So I think what's really great is I managed to say that the same way every time. I think I don't. Maybe the <laughs> listeners haven't realized I'm not reusing the same soundbite in the edit each week. You are saying singing that every single week. Exactly the same. Every single week. Exactly the same. It would be so easy for me to just copy paste it in. (laughs) But you insist on doing it. I insist on doing it because I insist on this segment. This is this is my this is my child. We have no new animals this week. No. But I wanted to do a dedicated time to talk about Momo and Appa because there were some beautiful Momo and Appa moments. One of them being Appa flying through the safety of, like, flying through all the firebending and all the catapults and everything. And he gets singed. And at one point, Momo goes over and starts patting the fire off of Appa's fur. And that is the bestest of friends. I loved it so much. 
I think they should get like a joint award for that this week. Just because you're making me do this segment this week, I'm not giving it to either of them. <gasps> I'm giving what? it to the fish that slaps Sokka in the face that Momo grabs to eat because it's the only animal that was new. <laughs> Momo, where- Momo steals a hat from the fire sages. Yep. <laughs> Momo also launches himself at a fire sage's face first. Like, Momo takes part in the big battle. Momo was Momo a critical was a part of the plan. Momo was the one to hide out and make the shadow. That's true. And get covered in soot and crawl through the pipes. Momo is so involved. Yeah. I love it. Appa was just it. a grump to Aang twice. <gasps> he was. He was all like, really I'm not going anywhere. And then Aang was what? all like, hey, buddy, how you doing? And he was all like, that, that's my opposite. So hard to get through that blockade. How does how does because that's D. Bradley Baker doing his voice? How does a human make those sounds? He also makes Momo sounds. I was reading my comic book for the search, and it has commentary from the creators. And there is one, uh, there is one fight in which Momo fights a giant wolf spirit, um, and they apparently showed it to uh, what's his name again? D. Bradley Baker. D. Bradley Baker, they showed it to him, and there's, I'll have to find it, but there is a video of him reading that scene back and forth, and it's just the animals back and forth for two pages. You need to find that. I want to put that in the show notes for this week. Okay. That's amazing. If I can find it, we'll keep that in, but it was... (laughs) They mention it in the in the in the book in the book, and I just I find that beautiful. I find that positively beautiful. That man does do some amazing voices. Do you know he's the voice of Perry the platypus? <gasps> Perry the platypus. Mm-hmm. Amazing. He's also every single clone trooper in the Clone Wars. Wow. All of them, and he makes them sound like distinct characters. You know what I think. Steve Bradley Baker should get the cute animal alert <laughs> this week. He is most of the animals. Yeah. He pretty much gets all of the cute animal alerts. Yeah, he. I know. But, like, I want to dedicate this one to him. Because <laughs> I, 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 lo- I love keeping, keeping tabs on Momo and Appa this way. And they're, uh, they, they're an integral part of the gang. And so I just want to... Give them their moment to shine because I feel like, especially we do a lot of character deep dives and talk about, uh, you know, development of characters and uh, character study that I don't want to overlook the the animal characters as well and how they develop from beginning to end. That's sweet. Yeah. Let's talk Roku. Avatar Roku, the predecessor to Aang, who was a firebender. Originally. I have some thoughts. Go ahead. Give I me have your some thoughts. thoughts. They mostly tie back to last week. So I was arguing last week that we didn't actually go to the spirit world. And I think that's because we don't actually go to the spirit world until this week. Okay. I think our color theory ties back into things. Okay. And explains that. Last week, when Aang is in what you say is the spirit world, 
No, I did not say he was in the spirit world. I said we were introduced to the spirit world. Very different. I misunderstood because I thought you were saying Aang was in the spirit world. No, I said this is our first introduction to the spirit world. And the spirit world, his spirit is, they're doing astral projection. They're showing that your spirit can be astral projected out. Okay, because this week is the first time we go to the spirit world. I will I will agree with that. Okay, because last week, Aang is a spirit. Yes, and in it's reality. the introduction of the concept of the spirit world is what I was saying last week. That we're introduced to, there is a spirit world, there are spirits, here is how spirits work. Here is how it works when you're a spirit in the in the spirit when you're considered in the spirit world because uh, in a spirit state is is called in the spirit world. So um, Aang being outside of his body, he does not have air bending. He does not have any sort of bending, and they consider that to be in the spirit world. But it's not the physical setting of the spirit world, is what I was saying. Okay, I thought you were saying that. That they were one and the same. No, no, I wasn't. So this this clears it all up for us. Oh my god! Like that, it only took us a week, folks. <laughs> big argument. Oh, one little miscommunication. There's a lesson in there somewhere. I was like, I was like, when do you? That's why I was like, when do you think we're introduced to the spirit world? This is not an introduction to the spirit world. Can I go on my rant anyway? Because yes. I've been building this up in my head. <laughs> Please do. Tell me. I'm ready for it. Okay, so last week, Aang is not in the spirit world. He is a spirit in the real world. Okay. And we know this because he is blue-tinted. Yes. And Fang is blue-tinted. Yes. And this week, we, we already know, we've already established that blue is related to the Avatar and the Avatar's spirit. The Avatar's state is blue. We find out in other Avatar properties that Aang's tattoos are not because he's the Avatar, but we associate that with the Avatar, and his tattoos are blue. And Heibai was was blue at the end of the episode, mm-hmm. right? During the transformation? Yep. Yeah. And this week, when Aang goes into the Avatar room to go talk to Roku, the door flashes blue. Yes, it does. And the fire sages say that Avatar Roku has sealed the chamber because he doesn't want anyone to intrude on the meeting. Mm-hmm. Avatar Roku's spirit has sealed the chamber with a blue light. Mm-hmm. And then Aang communes with the spirit in the spirit's world, but everything is colored normally because he is physically transported to this alternate plane. But... So he's physically transported, but if we were to look at side to side, he technically like his body is is left in that room, in the physical room with the statue because that's what happens when you enter the spirit state. So, but when he's in the spirit world, he's not he's not blue. You're right. I I think because we don't see his body in the room left behind, we can't say whether or not his body is transported with his spirit into the spirit world. It could be. Avatar Roku brought him there. Avatar Roku is powerful. He might be able to do that. It is the solstice. It could be. I'm going to say it's not likely, but I think it's up for debate. I would say I I think we're going to disagree on that. Um, 
because I think I think he was taken that his that his spirit visited Roku in the spirit world. That was not how I saw the scene. That's okay. But I accept your interpretation. Thank you. I will say the nail in the coffin for Aang not being in the spirit world last week, despite the fact that we agree on that. I still have to. I still want to get the rant out. Is when <laughs> Avatar Roku's spirit comes into the real world outside of the chamber at the end of the episode. He's blue. So this is where I want to talk about the fact that this is the first and. Um, as the Atla Wiki calls it, this is the first body manifestation of a former avatar that we see in the series. We will see this again, in which uh, Aang's body is taken over and gives the image of a uh, former avatar. Um, and so this is this is the first time they do it, and where Roku takes over, which is really cool. And yes, it has that blue. It's. I feel like it's the Avatar State Plus Ultra. <laughs> <laughs> because you've got that little extra... Like, it is It is designated. This, this Avatar State has a designated driver, and it is Avatar Roku. Give him five stars. <laughs> but no, it's the first body manifestation, which is really cool. Um, we will see one more um, from my girl Kiyoshi at some point. Maybe maybe you maybe you remember it. Maybe you don't. That's okay. We'll get there. We'll get there. This time we see that. Um I have some fun facts about Roku. You would like those. Avatar Roku fun facts. Avatar Roku fun facts. So I don't want to give anything away because we do at some point in the series spend a whole episode talking about Avatar Roku's background. Um and his uh story of how he became the avatar who his family and friends were like everything we delve into that but these are just some fun little things i wanted to pepper in um which is so yes avatar roku can lava bed which is a good thing um and then another thing about avatar roku something about avatar roku that i wanted to talk about is that when avatar roku in the history of atla went into the Avatar state for the first time. He went into the Avatar state for the first time on the same island, in the same place, um, and he lost control. He could not control the Avatar state the very first time, and he nearly destroyed the island. Uh, he did destroy... It was the first time he destroyed the uh, fire stage, like, the the place, the the Avatar sanctuary. He just couldn't handle all that Kiyoshi. <laughs> he could. He couldn't. He couldn't handle a lot of it. Um, well, to be fair, the first time Roku went into the Avatar state is likely the first time that Kiyoshi got like any sort of ability to interact with the world since her death. I can imagine there's a lot of pent up rage there. So here's here's where it talks about it. So. He tried using the Winter Solstice Sun to force himself into the Avatar state. So he like meditation was just not coming naturally. And so he tried to force himself into it with the Winter Solstice Sun. And so it's really specific that the solstice uh, about the Winter Solstice 
for unlocking Avatar Roku for Aang. Like, the timing is for a reason. So I thought that was really cool when I was going about it. And that I um, I really like that. That they eventually managed to free Roku from the state by aligning the Avatar's eyes with the Winter Solstice sun once more, halting the destruction of the temple. So the fact that the sun comes down and lines up with the je- with with his eyes, there's a reason for that too. I love that they built that like that they built that in at some point in the lore. Um, I just I think that's really cool that at some point they took the time to talk about that. It's in the comics probably, but it's still like still really cool. That's awesome. I really like that. Yeah, I thought it was fun. I thought you might like that. It's, it's cute. I have a question for you about Avatar Roku. Ask me. He says to Aang in their little in a little meeting that uh he has faith in Aang and Aang's ability to master the elements in time to save the world. And and we can talk more about the, the ticking clock that Roku introduces later, but Oh yeah. What I really want to know is what he says to Aang is you've done it before. And I read that as Roku saying, you know, I, Roku, was able to master the four elements, so you, Aang, you know, the next in in our line will be able to do it as well. Does it get easier for the Avatar to master the elements as the as the cycle goes on? I'm curious. I I like that question a lot because I hadn't thought of that before, and I'm thinking about it now. And I don't know because it's it's so interesting that you say that because I don't think we've seen any but any avatar have to master these elements so quickly. There hasn't been such a huge ticking clock. Um, avatar Avatar Roku had plenty of time to figure things out, and he had specific people training him. He had field trips around the world where he was, you know, pampered and taken care of. And his whole focus and goal was to learn this. And even like mastering the avatar state was like its own separate thing from mastering each element. So there's technically five things you have to master each of the four elements. And then you have to master the avatar state. That's its own other beast. Um, so I find it fascinating that you say that. And I want to see, I, I want to say, I could be wrong. I want to say it does get easier, um, as it go, as it goes on. I could be wrong. I think it's really, there are the, let me think this up. Hold on. I want to frame this right. There are elements that are going to be harder for certain avatars simply because it is opposite to their personality, to their lifestyle to um how they how they view the world and those are going to be the one that ones that are harder and those are that is historically true of um for ang we'll we'll see his hardest elements are the one where he has to be strong and stand his ground which are so opposite to air where he can evade where he can you know back off where he can go with the flow and everything uh and then there are, um, we'll get to, we'll, you know, Cora, when it gets to Cora, she is a very assertive, aggressive person. So something that is more go with the flow 
is really hard for her. It's kind of that aspect of the avatar being the bridge between the spirit and the human. And it's the human side that gets in the way. Like maybe the avatar spirit can get stronger and better and at mastering the elements, but it's the human element that is that little bit of chaos thrown into the learning process. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And that's a lot better than what I ended up thinking after that scene. I just thought <laughs> oh, he was really? telling Aang what he needed to hear. Oh. Oh, really? Well, yeah. I mean, Roku's been around. He's lived his life. He's, you know, got a bit of wisdom behind his belt. And he's looking at this kid that's left with this just incredible task in front of him. And he just says, yeah, you can do it. Like, probably need to hear that. Like, I think you can do it. I think it's less of, I think you can do it, of, no, you have to do it. Like, there is... There is a ticking clock that I am introducing, and you have to. There is no other option. You've got to do it. I don't know. I think Roku has a soft side. This episode sets the timer for the Avatar. Right now, we've just kind of been meandering like we're going to get to the northern to the Northern Water Tribe at some point. We need to learn waterbending, I guess. We've got time. We've got oodles and oodles of time. And then they drop the bomb. They introduce Sozin's Comet. This is the first time they call it Sozin's Comet, and this is the first time they talk about the comet. Um, but it's the second time we see the comet. Yes. Yeah, we saw the comet last week. Yes, but this is the first time they talk about the comet. Yeah. Yeah. He's seen a vision of... He doesn't even know what it is. He doesn't even know it's a comet. It's then explained to him that it's a comet and that this came a hundred years ago. And Sozin, um, the fire lord at the time, used it to eliminate the airbenders. It's like a plus 50 to firebending. <laughs> it's probably a better word than eliminate. Oh my God. Kelly. Exterminate? No, bad. Oh gosh. I just went Dalek. I don't know. I know. You did go a little Dalek. Um, but yeah, so this is the first time we're introduced to the comet. And they talk of Sozin's Comet. And they call it Sozin's Comet. And we'll continue to call it Sozin's Comet for the rest of the series. This threw me. Because in my head, I I realized that I equate seasons of a tv show to like a season is a year in universe as the default in my head because so many of the shows that i watch follow that time math so going into this rewatch i was like oh yeah we're gonna you know rewatch avatar story you know it's a fun story it takes place over like three years in three seasons no 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 because we have a ticking clock to game over end of show and it's six months. Yep, yep. Which means we see, like, every other day of these characters' lives for the next half year. Yeah. Blew my mind. It's so exciting. Yeah. It's so exciting. It just, it, it kind of broke my brain a little bit because I so conceive of, like, one year in universe is one season of time. Mm-hmm. That's not the case here. We are on an accelerated timeline. Yeah. Things are happening fast. I really felt for Aang in this moment. 
because it is like he has a lot to do in not a lot of time. And he doesn't have the resources that others have had before him. He doesn't have like a dedicated team that's looking to train him. Like he can't just stroll on into the fire nation and be like, I'm ready to learn my firebending. There is a whole nation rooting against him. Yeah. And we're going to the Northern Water Tribe so that he can learn waterbending. But he's already been to the Southern Water Tribe and there was no one there to teach him. Like the resources just don't exist. Exactly. Exactly. Those resources that there's been a hundred years of using up resources of losing connections and contacts because uh, from what we understand before this before this war, the nations at least had some kind of communication um, between each other to train avatars. And now they don't. This is communication has entirely broken down. It's rough. It's a tall task. It's a tall task. And he has to build everything from scratch. He has to learn all these elements from the very beginning and master them all within six months. And, and not just the elements, but master the avatar state and have enough control over that so that he can take on, I mean, we, we put it all on Fire Lord Ozai and they actually, they show, this is our first image of him, like the silhouette of him in the, um, in the discussion from Roku. But in theory, the Fire Nation, he has to control all of this in half a year to take on a whole nation's army. Yeah. Wow. And he's 12. 111. Yeah. Yeah. 11D1. 11D1. It really, if we thought the blockade and entering the Fire Nation up the ante... This just like blew it out of the water. Yeah. It's going to be rough. But it makes it gives a drive. And it's funny because I think it was really well timed. I don't think I had noticed that there wasn't a drive yet. Like and that we were kind of meandering that we had. Oh, yeah. The the fire prince is trying to trying to capture us. That was really kind of the only motivator. And. Yeah, we want to stop a war, but, you know, we'll have to, we'll, we'll get there. Now, there is a finite time. There's a deadline. We cannot waste it swimming with elephant koi. Or sledding in mail chutes. Colton, there is such a tone shift at the end of this episode in comparison to the end of every other episode so far for me. I love that at the end of this episode, there's all this lore drop on Aang. Aang morphs into Roku. Roku takes over. Roku saves everybody. They get out. And we get this just this quiet flying off into the distance in the safety of the glow of the moon. And there's a group hug. And it just lets you settle with all the knowledge that Roku has given Aang. It's not. Aang saying, there's a comet coming, and we have to. I have to master all four elements before the end of summer. Dun, dun, dun. There's none of that. There's none of, you know, I need to find, I need to find a waterbending master. Dun, dun, dun. There's no little quip. There's no, there's no talking. There's just 
silence and there's this silhouette of them just flying off into the night and it's so it's so enveloping that it felt like it was letting not just Aang settle with the knowledge but the audience settling with all that knowledge up and i also thought it was really cool to see maybe he, maybe Aang didn't maybe Aang told Katara and Sokka all this information up front Maybe he didn't. And it doesn't matter. They look at Aang. They see he is troubled. He is concerned. He has gone through a lot today. And they just they just give him a group hug as they fly away from that situation. And I just thought that was really beautiful. I think it's interesting that you mentioned letting the audience sit with that moment. Because it, I think it really does speak to uh, a confidence in the writing and the directing of the show that they made the decision to not put that recap in, to not, you know, jam it down your throat that like, this is what we have to do. Remember, this is what we have to do. This is what we have to do. And this is why we have to do it. They just, you've been watching. You, you know, the stakes. We raise them just now. And you have to, you and our characters have to sit and cope with that and cope with what that means and what that's going to mean. And it's not exactly silence. We do have beautiful, gentle scoring that will become iconic i believe this is the first time we have that uh kalimba melody it's called i think it's called the avatar's love that you know soft um i know it when i hear it yeah yeah it's uh well you know you know what a, a kalimba is it's that little box with a hole it's like a little wood block with a hole cut in it and instead of guitar strings over the hole it's a bunch of little oh, metal yeah, yeah, yeah. like teeth Yes. And you pluck them. Yeah, that's that's yes. what that instrument is that's that's playing there. Okay. And thank you. That that melody that they play on the kalimba becomes so iconic in the show and so representative of this sense of sorrow, but the hope that is born out of that. And the the closeness and the gentleness and the care that Team Avatar has for each other. It just and I think introducing that after putting so much weight on the audience so effectively communicates the weight that was just put on, but also that we do have hope. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It really got me. Yeah. It got me. And I, I thought it was a really, a really uh, compassionate conclusion to a two episode arc. Because this is technically a two episode arc. It's a part one, a part two. I thought this ver- was very well done at putting, at closing the book, like closing that chapter um, on the introduction to the spirit world. There was a lot of lore dropping throughout both, and it just said, all right, think about it. The next episode is going to set a, di- it's gonna kick off at a different pace than what we've been doing. Be ready. Yeah. I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm so ready.
Thank you for listening to the Pi Show. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find our show notes at thepieshow.fm/eight. If you'd like to reach us, you can send us a tweet at the Pie Show or email us at thepieshowpodcast at gmail dot com. Tell us your thoughts. Tell us your feelings. Do you like my cute animal alerts? <laughs> I like them. I just think we should reserve them for when there are cute animals. We should be alerted to, not the same two animals every week, despite the fact they're cute. I think they deserve their segment. Anyways, tell us about it. <laughs> Let's talk about lava bending. Let's talk about lava bending. All right. We're doing a post-show, so, post-show. Wow, this is weird. A professional podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because lava bending... It it delves too much. There's very little to any lava bending in the core Atla. In the comics and post in past universe, there is lava bending. In Legend of Korra, there is lava bending. There's very little reference to it in Avatar: The Last Airbender. So, post jump, kinda. Um, it. Avatar Roku is confirmed able to, well, was confirmed able to lava bend. And that's how he was able to help make those tunnels and everything. And before you say it, yes, we know Avatar Roku dies because of a volcano, but it was not the lava that got him. It's the noxious gases. So so it was the uh, air, not the fire. Yes, exactly. Uh, the Another Avatar who could lava bend Kiyoshi. And this is kind of the only other reference to it in Avatar The Last Airbender is when she makes her stand against Chin the Great and snaps a peninsula off of a continent and creates an island. So that was a big deal. Uh, other lava benders we get, there is talk of. Avatar Setsu, I believe that's how it's pronounced, was also a lava bender. Um, let me see who. I forget which nation he was. He was a fire nation, and he preceded Avatar Yangchen, which was the the last the last last airbender. So um, it's it seems to stay mainly with um, fire and earth, which makes sense. Because when we go to Legend of Korra, we have uh, Bolin, who is an earthbender, is able to lava bend. And he learns it after seeing a uh, criminal named um, Gaizan. Or Gaizan? Forget how to pronounce it. Gaizan, Don't quote I think. me on it. Gaizan, yep. Uh, is also a lava bender. 
So we're left with at the end of Legend of Korra, there is only one known living lava bender, which is Bolin. Hmm. That is my deep dive on lava bending. I think what's also really cool is that with lava bending, um, and being such a specialized technique of it's considered a specialized technique of earth bending. What's really cool about Bolin being a lava bender is the fact that he had parents from both Earth Nation and Fire Nation. So I feel like parentage should come into play for that. Do you know what I mean? Like you should have sort of an advantage if you have a sibling who's a firebender and you're an earthbender because you see their stance, you kind of take in more of their stance of how they use it. I think it's really frustrating how like the secondary bending forms you have in the avatar universe mm. are described and formed and all that like you just said that you kind of need that hybridization of fire and earth as an earthbender to be able to lava bend i don't i don't think you need it my theory is that it helps mm. um i it's i think what I'm more saying is in the style, when you see them physically lava bend, you see stylings of fire bending being used when they're lava bending, kind of similar to how when they do lightning redirection and lightning bending, it is very similar tactics to water bending. How Iroh does his water bending technique in a fire bending form. Right. And we can see that. But yes. When a water bender does their secondary bending and and they either heal or you know we like we find out they blood bend mm -hmm. they're not it doesn't appear that they're pulling in any of the other schools when when an earth bender i would argue i would argue differently because the, what katara has learned and what um what and kind of what toff talks about with metal bending I think the bloodbending and that stuff uh, very much pulls from an earth element. It's very similar of finding that, finding that piece within and using it. Very similar to how Toph creates metal bending. She finds that earth within and she uses it. And when we see, when we get to that episode where Katara learns that specialized bending, there is a particular frame I am thinking of in which she uses an almost like very very similar earth bending stance against Hama. Hmm. But all right, so that's all well and good for blood bending, but metal bending yeah. is just like ultra super focused earth bending. Mm -hmm. It's just earth bending with extra stubbornness. And yeah. for air benders, their secondary thing is you know astral projection and, and spirit stuff. And oh, and flight. Right, but that also does not call upon any of the other elements. Neither mm -hmm. of those things. Like, it just, it feels, and I guess the world doesn't have to be perfectly consistent. It just feels, yeah. like, very inconsistent. Why can't... I don't think it and, feels inconsistent, uh, unless you can give me a specific, like, well, where else do you do see... Do you think it would be difficult for an airbender to steam bend? I think they could get closer. No, I think I think that could be, that could be a thing. Right, like, but do you think it would be a difficult thing for them to learn? 
I think it'd be difficult along the lines of lava bending. Okay. Because I don't think it would be diff. Like, I think based on what we've seen in this universe so far, it would not be difficult for an airbender to steam bend because they would just be like, yeah, I'm just bending the air around the water droplets. Well, we get to... Um, but lava bending is like a difficult thing for an earthbender to learn. They're not just bending the yes, earth. It's very that difficult. That is also very hot. They're, you know... It seems something that's not just difficult, but kind of uh, a piece of nature in a way. Like, it's it's not just... It's like, if you're looking at it as a, like, is this a taut or is this a, like, a, like born with skill? Mm-hmm. I think it I think it may lie a little more along nature than nurture. Do you think it would be difficult for a waterbender to bend mud? They actually uh the swamp benders. Right. And that is something that uh that Katara has is has trouble with at you know when she's learning and everything. She doesn't understand how they can use the vines and everything. It is a very specialized kind is it is a I think you and I talked about this at one point um about regional styles mm-hmm. of bending. And so the swamp bending is difficult for Katara, similar to Toph at the very beginning of the series, can't earth bend on the sand very well. And she has trouble holding up that library. She has trouble finding herself on the sand because it's so split off. It doesn't feel like earth to her. But other people have no problem bending the sand. Yeah. Because they've been born with it. They've been bored around it. They've learned it. Maybe I'm being harsh on it. Yeah, but um, I could see I could see it being more of a nature thing than a nurture thing. Um, it is the first bending sub skill that's shown in the franchise too, which is pretty cool. And all lava benders depicted in the series, with the exception of Kiyoshi, have been male. And I love. Yeah. Oh, right after that, it says lava bending is the only specialized sub skill that is not explored in terms of mechanics and philosophical understanding. So everything every. Th- every bit of conversation we just had about like the mechanics of it and is this nurture or nature mm-hmm. not really explored so, well, that's why we're talking about it inter- we're exploring up it for interpretation exactly we have no canon to lean on so we're making our own yeah um it is really interesting they talk about how uh similar it can it can be to w- some like water bending because it goes to fluid so you have to be I feel like you have to be really familiar with other bending styles to pick this up. Almost as if being familiar with other bending styles makes you a better bender. What? Almost as if there Snap. should be harmony and balance between the elements. Colton, that is asking for too much. I know. <laughs> it's super cool, though. Lava bending's awesome. Yeah. And again, uh, <laughs> Avatar Kiyoshi literally splits her peninsula <laughs> from the mainland. That's With why you wanted bending. to talk about lava bending. You just wanted to go on another Kiyoshi rant. I'm gonna go about this Kiyoshi rant later too. Want to bring up Kiyoshi it's, it's as really much cool. as possible? That's who I am. That's what I'm going through right now. Going through my Kiyoshi phase. So cool. Um, first known use of lava bender was by Avatar Setsu, who used the technique while in the Avatar state to cause the simultaneous eruption of four small volcanoes. Maybe that's why that volcano came for Roku in the end. <laughs> 